0: Let's turn our attention now to Holy Scripture, and we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. And as you're turning there, let me bring you up to speed on what we've been talking about over the past few weeks. Nehemiah is a wonderful story of an ordinary man that God called to do an extraordinary thing. He and his group of workers, in only 52 days, rebuilt the wall around ancient Jerusalem, and that was both practically and spiritually significant. It was practically significant in the sense that it protected them from their marauding neighbors, and spiritually significant in the sense that this allowed them to resume temple worship, which is how they connected with God during this period of redemptive history. And so now we are entering a new phase of this story in which the wall has basically been finished, and now they are going to have to protect what God has done. So let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help, and that we would have open ears and hearts today to what God would say to us through this story. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate this text to us. We pray that we'd be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our minds, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pick up the story beginning in verse 10. Now I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Methatebel, who was confined to his home, and he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now, much like what we saw last week with the invitation to come meet with uh, Tobiah and Sambalit and Geshem the Arab on the plain of Ono, what this appears on the surface is not what it actually is under the surface. On the surface, this looks like a kind and generous offer from someone who is very concerned about Nehemiah and his safety, and in fact, what it actually is, is exactly the opposite. It is a prophet, someone who has been faithful to speak on behalf of God in the past, who has somehow been commandeered or leveraged into trying to lure Nehemiah to do something that he could never do. Look back at the exact language here. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and what he's talking about here is a part of the temple that Nehemiah would have never been allowed into as a layman. And uh, the the scripture is, is replete with examples about this. Actually, Nehemiah's, uh, excuse me, Numbers uh, eighteen seven tells us that the outsider who comes near will be put to death, and Second Chronicles twenty six sixteen through twenty one shows us how seriously God took this because King Uzziah tried to invade the holy precinct, and God gave him leprosy. So this would have been the kind of thing that Nehemiah would have known, because he would have been a student of the scripture in his own way at this point. And he was able to look at this situation and say, hey, something's not right here. They're trying to trick me, they're trying to derail me, they're trying to uh, uh, disable my moral authority, and to make this even worse... The and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, are preying upon this man who himself is disabled. They're using whatever credibility he would have had to try to entice and lure Nehemiah. But Nehemiah is smart and wise, and he sees through it. Look at his response. <coughs> but I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I should go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they would give me a bad name in order to taunt me. So when you take this together, we get our first principle today. And that is that Nehemiah shows us exemplary discernment and an unwavering commitment to God and his word. He shows us exemplary discernment and an unwavering commitment to God and his word. Now, we have seen this time and time again throughout the book. We saw it last week as well. But the type of spiritual acuity that Nehemiah has to be able to look through various situations and see what's actually going on It really is the kind of characteristic that all of us want to and need to emulate. And I believe this has never been more important in our generation than in the historical moment that we're in, because we are in a credibility crisis for so many things that we used to not question, things that we would have just taken at face value before. Now we wonder, can can we trust this or or this or, or that or whatever? And we need the type of discernment that Nehemiah had that only comes from God and comes from God's Word. And so when we think about the importance of God's Word and how it should be our compass, how it should be our anchor, how it should be our guide, let's think about the nature of God's Word itself. Just a couple of reminders here. One from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Can that be said of your favorite news outlet? Can that be said of any of the governments of the world today? Can that be said even of our trusted confidants that that we look to for wisdom? It can't. That statement can only be made about God and his word. Everything else is fleeting and fading But at the end of the day, we have the authority of God and the authority that He gives to His Word. Let me give you another reminder here. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Friends, what wonderful, powerful, engaging reminders that the Bible gives us about itself to show us just how significant it is. And again, can that be said of our favorite news outlet or our trusted confidant or even the governments of the world? It cannot. So though we do need to look to other sources for information and direction and ultimacy, our ultimate discernment has got to come from God and his word he has to be our anchor he has to be our hope he has to be our guide because he is the only one that will never let us down so it should be no surprise that here at refuge franklin we are in the bible business everything we do somehow relates to revolves around or goes back to the bible that's why we do the type of preaching that we do here on Sundays, whether it's myself or uh, one of our other wonderful communicators. That's why we talk about the sermons and community group. That's why we are so big on uh, moving the church in this direction of getting really focused about discipleship. Because in this culture of credibility crisis, we need to go to the place that we know has the ultimate credibility, God and his word. And we need to be taught how to read it and rightly divide it. We need to be taught how to invest it in our peers, in our children. And we need to imbibe as much of it for ourselves as we can. So let me ask you a question here. If we see the type of discernment that we want to have to be able to look through even situations that look like good situations and say, you know what? I just don't know. We need to know more about this. Are we tuning our hearts, tuning our ears, trimming our eyes to be able to see, listen, I need to know what God says about these things, what God thinks about these things, what God would have me do in these situations. And friends, that all goes back to the Bible. Are we seeking to know it, to learn it, to hide it in our hearts so that we might not sin against God? And are we seeking to grow in our knowledge of Scripture and invested in others. If we want to have the type of discernment that Nehemiah had, we have to be the kind of person that Nehemiah was. Someone that is devoted to Holy Scripture and to the God behind it and willing to do what the Bible says, even in this case for him, if it puts us in danger. So let's take a lesson from his wonderful example Let's be thankful for the way that he lives this out in front of us, and let's learn what we can from it. Now, let's look at verse 14, because Nehemiah shows us something else we need to follow in his footsteps with as well. He says, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, <coughs> and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Now, we are well-versed in the evil of Tobiah and Sanballat and the continual trouble that they have posed for Nehemiah. But here he throws a couple of new characters and names into this uh, evil stew, if you will. One prophetess in particular named Noadiah, uh, we don't know a great deal about her, other than he felt compelled to na- name her by name. But then also the rest of the prophets that he mentions here sort of in mass. And this would have been a statement that communicates the value that uh, Jews like Nehemiah would have placed on their prophets. And he's saying, listen, not only have Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem corrupted this one man Shemiah, but now there's this prophetess and now there's this whole other group. And it seems that they have all been turned to be used as this almost Shakespearean chorus uh, to try to cause him to doubt and fear and ultimately walk away from what God has called him to do. But again, I think the real value here for us in this is looking and seeing how Nehemiah responds to such a coordinated attack. What is this that he's doing here? When he says, remember Tobiah and Sam Ballot, oh my God, this is another one of those flash prayers that Nehemiah has prayed throughout the book. In fact, I think it's probably the fifth uh, and sixth of the prayers that he prays in this way. And taken together, that leads us to our second principle. And that is that Nehemiah models for us the value of consistent and persistent prayer throughout the entire ordeal. He models for us the value of consistent and persistent prayer throughout the entire ordeal. And I love how this squares with what Jesus taught on prayer. He gave numerous parables to his disciples and subsequently to us to show us to pray and to pray and to keep on praying, to, to pray and to not give up. And part of the reason why I think he gives such teaching like that is because it's so easy to do exactly the opposite, especially in our day. When we think about our historical moment, What are we used to? We're used to walking across the kitchen, getting something from the freezer. Uh, If it's some kind of little freezer meal or breakfast burrito, we pop it open, we put it in the microwave, we push in some buttons, and voila, two minutes later or less, we have exactly what we were after. We like and almost thrive upon instant gratification. Take that a step further. You pop open your phone, you're looking through Instagram, boom, right there you have something that can encourage you or discourage you, but immediately it is at your fingertips. And that bleeds into our relationships with people. We want what we want when we want it in whatever line that we're standing in or whatever situation that we're in. And it certainly bleeds over into our relationship with God, that we ask for something and we expect immediately that God would do what we think is best. Sometimes he answers immediately, And sometimes it takes a long time. And so Jesus taught time and time and time again to pray and to pray and to keep on praying. And in this situation with Nehemiah, that was so necessary because the hits just keep on coming. This is like an oldies radio station. And there was bad news after bad news and now he's got false prophets, now he's got this other prophetess, he's got this group of prophets And so Nehemiah consistently and persistently calls out to the Lord for his help and also that he would bring justice in the midst of all this injustice. The fact that he prays and prays and keeps on praying in the midst of what God has called him to do, friends, we need to lay hold of that example. We need to be inspired. We need to be challenged. We need to be possibly even convicted by that example. And we need to look through the window of Nehemiah's life and say, by the grace of God, and through the grace of God, I want to be like that. I want to be the kind of person that when something happens in my life, prayer is not simply a break glass, in case of emergency, option for me, but it is a continual pursuit for me. You know, I I taught this years ago, uh, this this image that I want to put before you again. That when we're really getting prayer right, it's like when we wake up in the morning, we grab our phone and we call God's number and we press send and we never hang up throughout the rest of the day. And we just talk about whatever comes up in the day. The good news, the bad news, all the news in between. The Lord help me. The Lord, I praise you. The Lord, please help me be able to speak the gospel to this coworker or this child or this neighbor, and everything in between. It's like a phone call that we press, send in the morning, and we don't stop until we go to bed. And then when we get back up, we repeat again. Now of course, there are those certain times when we do call aside just like Jesus did and, and we spend that focus time, what you might want to call a quiet time to draw strength from God and pray through a prayer list, to pray through, for example, the book that we're using as a church, those focused times of prayer. But these little f- flash prayers that Nehemiah prays time after time after time, what a wonderful example to us, not just of consistency and persistence, but also intimacy in his relationship with God. God was not someone that was a stranger to He is someone that he would have been in regular and close contact with. And I think the question we need to ask ourselves here would be something like this. Would that describe our prayer lives? That the God to whom we speak is a trusted friend, the friend that sticks closer than a brother, the phone call that is turned on and not turned off, but that we are in constant communication that lines up with what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament when he says to pray without ceasing. Oh friends, may we look through the window of Nehemiah's life and be inspired and challenged by the type of prayer that he prays, the fact that he keeps praying it, and the fact that he keeps on praying it. And friends, I hope you hear the gospel in this as well. Because think about the fact that we have a Father that beckons us to come. And not just sometimes, but all the time. Think about the heart behind someone who's willing to listen to us in the morning, in the evening, in the noonday, when we feel like we have it together, when we're completely falling apart the Father's heart that draws us in and says, come to me with whatever you got. Let's talk about it. Ask me for it. Let me help. Friends, that is the God to whom we pray. That's the God to whom Nehemiah prayed. And when we, through the finished work of the Lord Jesus, see God in that way, doesn't that make you want to pray? Does not it make you want to bring whatever it is that's bothering you to your Father. Oh, friend, I hope it does. Now let's look on here in the passage in verse 15. It says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of of our God. Now this is not really a principle for us here, but man, don't you love that? Don't you just love the way that, that that this is described? That they excuse me had come along and they had all these evil schemes and plans and they saw this miraculous work done by this miraculous God through this very unmiraculous group of people And they knew the only explanation was that God was involved. They knew, even as unbelievers, they were looking at something that only God can do. Friends, that's what I want for our church. That's what I want for my life, for my family's life. That's what I want for your life. I want people to be able to look at Refuge and at the Neelys and at you and, and say, listen, God is the explanation for this. God is the only explanation for how this has been accomplished, whatever it is. And as I think about that, I think about, so what does it take to live in that way? Well, I think the first thing it takes is it takes some humility. That, that we dispense with trying to make our own names great. We dispense with fighting with God for his glory And we just say, listen, the name, the fame that I'm about is about the one that's going to matter in 10,000 years. It's about Jesus. It's not about us. And that low place that we begin with, now that puts us somewhere where God can actually do something with us. And from that, I think it it leads into us committing to the Lord whatever, whatever it is that we're trying to do. Whether that's to potty train your kid. Do that for the glory of God. Whether it's to to buy a new house and get moved in and finally get out of living in boxes. Do that for the glory of God. Whether it's raising your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, or starting a business, or, or being the best employee that you can be, whatever it is, do that to the glory of God. Commit that to Him, and friend, I guarantee you, the results will be different. They will. Because if your desire is for the name and fame of Jesus to be advanced and his kingdom to be advanced, why would God not bless that? Does that mean it's going to naturally prosper unbelievably? I don't know. I don't know. But I know this, that if we live and leverage our lives in the way that God would have us do it, I know that God will be pleased and his hand will be on it, and that is what we want no matter what the end result is. And friends, Nehemiah knew that. And even these unbelievers could look in from these other nations and see something different was happening here. Do you know that's part of the reason we started this season of prayer that we are in, that started back in May? Some of it was was like so many churches I know, it, it was the season of reset. We're trying to figure out what it is that God wants us to do. And you know what? As we have prayed about this and prayed for wisdom and clarity over these months, God has answered this. The whole shift in focus that we've made about getting more intentional about discipleship, that's not just leadership, leadership strategy. That's an answered prayer. We asked God, God, this is your church. What do you want us to do? And God spoke to us. And now we're building it out and we're doing it. This is what we want. We want people to be able to look at refuge and to be able to say, God is the explanation for this. God is the source of their fruit. God is the source of their endurance and their perseverance and and, and the continued ministry. God is the reason. That's what we want. And that's what you want if we belong to Jesus. Now, let's jump back in here. One more thing I want to point out from this passage. Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 17. It says this, it says, moreover, in the days of the nobles, uh, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah the son of Arah, and his son, Johanan, had been taken had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Tough, tough names today. And they also spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported many words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Now, let me give you the principle and then let's unpack what's happening here. The third and final principle is this that Nehemiah shows us that we should never be surprised by the continuing opposition to God's work. We should never be surprised of the continuing opposition to God's work. Let's think back about what we just learned in this passage. They just finished this law. They finished it. And in some ways, perhaps you would think, you know what, they're done. Maybe these guys know that they're beat. They're just going to drop it. They don't drop it. In fact, they step it up in some ways. And and what is happening here, uh, look back in your text there. Who is the source of the problem? The nobles of Judah. They are now involved and are sending letters. And basically they're telling on Nehemiah and they're also working with Tobiah because of how he has turned their hearts as well. But let me tell you something about these nobles of Judah. We've encountered these folks before. Do you remember back in chapter 3 when we talked through the list of names that was mentioned there? Well, these are the same nobles that thought they were too good to do the work. They would not work, and he mentioned that by name. And we see now part of the reason they wouldn't work is they were too busy being busybodies and being in Tobiah's pocket to, to try to derail the work even after it's done and also to continue to listen to Tobiah. And, and what seems to be happening here, uh, I, I think there's some, some insight that we get here uh, through the words of Warren Weersby, who was a real help to me in, in uh, preparing this message. He, he talks about how this idea uh, of being influenced by other people can cause such a problem. And that basically they had traded their commitment to God for a commitment to Tobiah. And part of what he sees going on here, and I, I think he's probably right here, is that they are playing politics and they are also enamored with what Tobiah has said to them. In some way, uh, stroke with being, their ego is being stroked by what Tobiah uh, has said to them. And so they are, as it says here in the last verse, they spoke of his being Tobiah's good deeds and they reported Nehemiah's works back to him. So somehow he has gotten into their ear. Maybe it was a kickback. Maybe it was just giving them nice comments or whatever, but they are the people that should have had the most vested interest in making sure that this work got back on track And they resumed the right spirituality. They were from the tribe of Judah, for crying out loud. And in Old Testament history, if anybody should have gotten this, they should have gotten this. But instead, the opposite is true. And I think in their derailing behavior here, there's a few short lessons for us. Because this is how Satan works on us as well. Again, let me quote from Warren Wearsby here. He's talking about this. He says, Satan is not a quitter, but he stays on the field even after it looks as if he lost the battle. Many a careless Christian has won the war, but afterward lost the victory. He is always looking for an opportune time to attack the victors and turn them into victims. We need the counsel of the saintly Scottish minister Andrew Bonar who said, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Isn't that good counsel? Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. And and I don't know who this might be for today, but there's at least some of us out there who we, maybe God has done a great work in our life. Uh, Maybe we've seen some real victory in regard to some kind of addiction or some kind of particular difficulty, friends, hear the word from the New Testament. Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And I'm not saying that to scare you or discourage you. Quite the opposite, actually. I'm just saying to you, listen, stay on guard. Be aware. You know, that, that, that's one thing that we, I'd have some disagreements on some other points, but but one thing that that the recovery community has taught me is when when they think about sobriety and maintaining sobriety, they think about doing it one day at a time. And I think there is such good wisdom in that that we need to approach our spirituality similarly. And there's a great paradox here for Christians, isn't there? Because on the one hand, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus and we've truly been converted, man, we are saved irrevocably. And at the same time, walking out the what the theologians would call progressive sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, how does that happen? It happens one day at a time. It's a thousand little decisions of saying no to sin and yes to Jesus and drawing close to God in prayer and memorizing scripture and all those things, we're not doing them to be saved, but we're doing them because we're saved. And we're doing them from a place of appropriate wisdom in understanding what Nehemiah shows us here. That even though Satan has lost us into God's hand, he will continually provoke and try to distract and try to dismantle and to try to get us all focused as a church, as individuals, as husbands, as wives, as students. He will do everything he can to get us focused on anything or anybody other than Jesus to try to destroy the kingdom work that God is doing in our lives. So when we think about this, we don't need to be afraid of the enemy. He's already been defeated, but we need to be aware of the enemy. And we need to be aware of his work, and we need to be aware that he doesn't just give up when somebody gets off drugs, or they get free from pornography, or they really turn a corner financially, or they really get some issue in their marriage handled. He just goes underground, and he looks for other ways to try to distract and dismantle and and, and to steal and to kill and destroy. So again, we don't need to be afraid of him and what he's doing, but we need to be aware of what he's doing. And also, just to to, to get real close to what's happening here in the text, what is part of the problem that these people had at this moment? I mentioned it before, but I want to dig on it just a little bit here. They traded their allegiance that should be to God for the allegiance to this Godless person, and friends, that is—that's everywhere in our day. Now, it, it's obvious out in the world of people, you know, walking away from God and uh, listening to whoever their quote-unquote prophet is. But friends, this can happen in the church as well. That it, I, I see this regularly. Not—not not a problem here really here at Refuge, but but I see this around the country that people stray from what God and his words say, and they just go, well, I believe that because my favorite preacher believes that. Or I believe that because I heard it on my favorite podcast. Or people will begin to make decisions just because that's what somebody else did, and they don't think through it for themselves. And, and that is not the kind of people that we need to be. We need to be people that are fiercely and ultimately devoted to God And everything else is is pushed through the grid of his word. Because one of the ways that Satan does distract and destroy is he gets our focus off of Jesus and he puts it on other things and other people. And so we need to be aware of that. We need to be mindful of that. And we need to go back to the source of the help and the hope and the encouragement that is found only in Christ. Because guess what? Even though these nobles got it wrong, Jesus always got it right. Even though they failed in what should have been so obvious, Jesus never failed in both what was obvious and what we couldn't even see. And because of Jesus' success, friends, we can go to him in the midst of our failure. Because as we look to Nehemiah as an example, we got to look through Nehemiah. And as we look through Nehemiah, we see Jesus. Let's think back about what we learned in this passage here. We think about the, the ultimate discernment and the unwavering commitment to God and his word. Who better exemplifies that than the Lord Jesus? He always knew what to do. He knew what the Pharisees were thinking and were going to say before they even said. He said in his own words that it was his food to do the will of the one who sent him. So if we want to walk in Nehemiah's example, we're going to do that by looking at Jesus, by asking for his help. Think about the second point, the consistent and persistent prayer. How many times in Jesus' own ministry do we see him laying his hand on, uh, on someone that was sick or dead or afflicted with a demon and praying and asking for God to reveal his power. How many times did Jesus teach on prayer? I mentioned some of it today, but he knew the value and the need that we would have for ongoing strength from God. And then also, no one would have been less surprised at the continued opposition of the work of God than the Son of God himself. And so in the midst of our difficulty, our struggle, our failure, we go to this Jesus. We ask for his help. We go knowing that he is going to give us the grace that we need. And we get to see what only God can do. So let me close this message by asking us just a couple of questions. Number one, do you know this Jesus has there come a time in your life where you said, look, I cannot save myself, and that you have admitted that you're a sinner? Has there been a time in your life when you lay hold by faith of the perfect life the substitutes death and the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus? Have you committed your life to follow him? Friends, if there's not been that moment, then let today be the day of salvation. I pray that you put your faith and trust in Christ today And reach out to us, and we want to help you in your new journey with Jesus. For those who've already made that turn, for the things that we've talked about and touched on today, and maybe even the things that we haven't, where is God revealing to you right now the greatness and the sufficiency of Jesus and also your deep and abiding need for Him? Wherever that intersection may be, let's go to Him now and pray and ask, for what only he can do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for what it teaches us, for what it touches on, and how it points us to Christ. We pray that you'd help us today and in the days ahead. In Jesus' name.